Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hello, it's Saturday. I mean, probably, if you look at the download stats. Yeah, the majority do come on a Saturday. This Saturday, in fact. And you know what the Saturday show means. Best of the week and best of the vaults. First, I'll tell you what is in the best of the vaults segment. This was one of the first shows we did. This is a segment from June of 2014. And I referenced it this week because Gordon Lightfoot died. And Gordon Lightfoot made a few songs, took a few songs, number one on the Canadian charts. But in America, is best known for The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Turns out... That tune can apply to many a lyric. I'm not going to give you two segments where I sing a bunch of songs to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I'll just give you my original wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Fun fact slash party trick. That's from June of 2014. The segment I did this week that I want to highlight for you was MSNBC disinformation reporter Ben Collins came in hot, calling the Washington Post brain dead in a tweet. I opined, oh, God, I can't believe NBC just allows a straight news reporter to opine like this, pop off like this on, you know, an issue I think he's clearly wrong on. I tweeted, you know, he may be right, but the network doesn't do itself any service when it allows its reporter to have such latitude with these blazing hot takes. Few people said, oh, so you're saying he's right. I stopped reading your tweet then. No, I want to be clear. Ben Collins is wrong, which is a matter of subjective opinion. But my point is, why am I subjected to a straight news reporter's subjective opinion when the thing he's supposed to have authority on is the important issue of disinformation, the important and thorny issue? Anyway, I got into it on the show, kind of at length. I'm a little bit impassioned. This is in no way an ad hominem. It's really not. Yeah, Collins got under my skin, but I'm trying to make the point, and I think I do, about the media. And to answer, you know, many people get in the comments of a Twitter thread, why do you care about MSNBC or NBC? And I answer that question there. And that is hanging over the whole spiel that I'm going to play for you. I care because we don't have that much authoritative media. And I hate to see it fritter away. Anyway, you'll hear those points and more. That was from this week. Enjoy as much as one can be said to enjoy my singing and my bemoaning the state of the media. And now the spiel, wherein I share with you today my great song, Hack. Everything's a hack. It's not a hack. It's an insight, a brilliant insight that may be overly broad. And it's about one of the most important songs ever written by a Canadian about a bad thing that happened in international waters. Actually, I think it was the American side because the song is the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Andrea, could you cue that for us, please? So as you know, the famous, this famous song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, it's got that great up and down tempo. Maybe it reminds me of the uh, waves on Lake Michigan lapping against the side of the ship. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. 
And it struck me as I was thinking about the Edmund Fitzgerald, this was many years ago, that many an other song could fit exactly into the melody of the Edmund Fitzgerald. In fact, it seems like a song, the kind of song where we've never heard a song like this before. But in a way, every song can sound like the Edmund Fitzgerald, right? Like Billy Joel, scenes from an Italian restaurant. A bottle of white and a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. They started to fight when the money got tight and they just didn't count on the tears. But just to show you that I'm not cherry picking songs, every song works to the tune of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oops, I did it again. I gave you my heart. But just to show that I'm not cherry picking these songs, Andrew, get on that mic. Give me any song. This is not a setup. And we'll see if it works to the tune of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay, Beatles. I want to hold your hand. When I tell you something, I hope that you understand. I want to hold your hand. Amazing. But what I did was I surveyed the office and I just asked them, give me your favorite song. So a funny thing happens when you ask people for their favorite song or a certain type of person. Hey, Jordan, what's your favorite song? Uh, it's a loaded question. People don't want really want to tell you their favorite song or they can't quite access their favorite song because, you know, it's not just their favorite song. It's, as John Swansburg and I discussed, it's a little bit of signaling. What you're really saying is not necessarily your favorite song. You're projecting something about your taste. But I finally got everyone to admit a favorite song here or there. And let's Edmund Fitzgerald these songs. Here we go. Desperados Under the Eaves by Warren Zevon. Don't the sun look angry through the trees? Don't the trees look like crucified thieves? Don't you feel like desperados under the eaves? Heaven help the one who leaves. Prince. All right. Um, 1999? Mm, I want to be your lover or kiss. You don't need to be beautiful to turn me on. Just need your body dusk till dawn. Grateful Dead, um, Eyes of the World. Wake up to find out that you are the eyes, that you are the eyes of the world. Uh, Stratford on Guy by Liz Fair. I was flying to Chicago at night, watching the lake turn into blue-green smoke. The sun was setting to the left of the plane, the cabin filled with an unearthly glow. In 27D, behind the wing, landscape rolled like credits on a screen. Wow, and that one's about, I think, Lake Michigan, too. That's amazing. If you look at my iTunes on my iPod, the most played song is not that song. It is She-Wolf by Shakira. There's a she-wolf in the closet. Open up and set it free. There's a she-wolf in the closet. Let it out so it can breathe. (gasps) Now, there's another thing. This, I mean, this is perhaps the greatest insight I've ever had in life. But just a couple days ago, I had another insight. And I don't know if this is going to work. So you know the song, Whoop, There It Is, right? I, I kind of forgot that there were actual verses to Whoop, There It Is. And uh, the verses are just really generic, you know? It's like, it's basically, here's a stub bunch of stuff we got to say. We're going to say this bunch of stuff. It's going to rhyme. Well, let me hear-
hear some noise. DC's in the house, jump, jump, rejoices. There's a party over here, a party over there. Wave your hands in the air, shake the dairy, yeah. But then we're gonna get to the good part, why everyone knows the song, and then. And so my point is that any song, especially songs that have a, a nice little ending place, but just about any song can serve as the verse to Whoop There It Is, and it doesn't really hurt Whoop There It Is. So let's do a couple of versions of that. Here we have Pavarotti's Nessum Dorma. I think there's Judy Collins singing Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch like me. Little Barbershop Quartet Works. How can there be any sin in sin, sin? And so finally... The bringing together of these two great music hacks would go like this. There's a party over here and a party over there. Wave your hands in the air, shake your derriere. These three words when you're getting busy, whoop, there it is. Hit me, whoop, there it is. Whoop, shakalaka, shakalaka, shakalaka. Whoop, shakalaka, shakalaka. And now the spiel. The Washington Post wrote a sensible op-ed the other day talking about an issue that I talk about on the show often. It was a more than sensible op-ed. It was well done and necessary, I'd say. Title, these universities are pushing back on censorious students, finally. It discussed not just high-profile examples of the Cornell president rejecting a student trigger warning resolution titled Mandating Content Warnings for Traumatic Content in the Classroom, and the Stanford Law Dean's pushback on students trying to use the heckler's veto. There's also new information to me in the op-ed, such as the fact that Vanderbilt is hosting the Future of Free Speech Project with a Danish think tank. All good, except to Ben Collins. It was not good. Calling the op-ed brain dead, Collins advised the Washington Post to, quote, grow up and talk to your actual reporters about what's really going on, good God. The original tweet of Collins in its entirety was a screenshot of the Washington Post headline with Collins' comment, they are literally stripping shelves bare of books at public schools in Florida, and we're still getting absolutely brain-dead takes like this one by the editorial pages at newspapers in 2023. Grow up and talk to your actual reporters about what's really going on, good God. All right, fine. I'm very familiar with the knee-jerk dismissiveness of any concern about excesses and free speech issues on college campuses. Typically, they fall into different buckets. One is don't minimize the harms these students face. One is anyone concerned with the excesses of students trying to shut up their opponents are the real shutter-uppers. And then there's to complain about students just marks you as old and clinging to unenlightened values. It's not just that the Washington Post makes good comments and Ben Collins doesn't. It's why is Ben Collins making these comments? Here's a guy who's supposed to be a straight reporter on the disinformation beat, but he's constantly trying to dunk on every interpretation of events that he doesn't like. I'm open to 
interesting nuance on any of the specific issues. I've engaged in a lot of nuance. I think if you go back and listen to my stance on the Stanford case here on the gist, that was nuanced. But dismissing the Post stance, which generally aligns with what I think and certainly aligns with what the majority of Americans think, dismissing that as brain dead is the mark of a certain kind of familiar advocate of social justice. Again, fine, perfectly fine, I'd say, even if I disagree, except in the case of Ben Collins, it's not fine or shouldn't be given Ben Collins' role in the media ecosystem. By covering disinformation for NBC News, Collins is tasked with bringing to millions of viewers and readers on the online audience credible coverage of an important information. And disinformation really is important. Foreign actors have tried to influence our elections. Tools and algorithms make instantaneous dissemination of misinformation common. The Siloization of news and belief systems essentially allow us all to choose our own reality. And on the fringes, lies and propaganda have stoked real-world violence. But disinformation is harder to eradicate than termites. It's actually more like bacteria. What's the good bacteria? What's the bad bacteria? How much can you trust your gut? One temptation is to use the label and the suppressive powers of the state to call all unwanted or disfavored information disinformation. And that is why the arbiters of this specific issue have to be really, really clean, really credible. It's important. Disinformation has this internal tension. It's so easy to define it in ways that advance the definer's political agenda. So why would one of the referees, a supposed arbiter of accuracy, so wantonly weighed in with his blazing takes, and I'd say blazingly dense takes, on an issue of free expression? Again, it's not just any straight news reporter getting into it on Twitter or having an opinion. It's specifically about disinformation because disinformation inherently competes for the mantle of believability. And one way that it wins is by casting disbelief on the very fact that it happens. So let's think about what occurs when the disinformation reporter acts as a popcorn machine of opinion. The disinformation referee gets reduced to just that usual collection of hashtags and online dunks and owns. Ignorant dismissiveness comes at a cost to the dunker and yeah, to the parent organization that's trying to define itself as credible. And that's why I tweeted a screenshot of Collins calling the Washington Post op-ed brain dead with this sentiment, quote, I literally can't understand how a proper news organization allows a reporter this degree of latitude to come in guns blazing on an issue where reasonable people can disagree. Ben may be right, but doesn't NBC realize how it confuses readers and muddies the waters of their brand? Lots of people weighed in on my timeline with agreement. That was one day. The next day, Ben himself weighed in, quote, This issue has been a never-ending boogeyman that is a clear stand-in for something is wrong with the kids these days for my entire lifetime. It is okay for me to call it out. I don't try to get your podcast canceled from the podcast factory over your inability to grasp this. So I was heartened to know that Ben says it's okay for Ben to call out the Washington Post over an issue or issue, as he put in scare quotes, excellent auto ombudsmaning there, Ben. And right after that, Ben adds another tweet. I understand you guys are losing power and it makes you very afraid, but don't drag my job into your moral panic freak out. Thank you. That's, by the way, the standard objection to the excesses of college students. I'm old and I don't get the new enlightenment. I responded to Collins this way by putting issue in scare quotes. I'm sure all the audience members who disagree 
will realize they're wrong and still believe you're reporting on disinformation. That's how informing the public works, right? You know, in truth, I don't care about Ben Collins, person, opinion haver. I care about our ability as a society, as the media, as the reality community, to effectively convince people who might otherwise say, oh, come on, this thing you're calling disinformation, it doesn't really exist. LOL, nothing matters. You're just mad. You're losing. And that's what they do say. And I think a good answer is something like, actually, no, here's the data. Here's the documentation. Here's the direct line from lies to beliefs to action. But chain of custody gets muddied when the messenger is telling his followers, no, the Cornell president was wrong. The Stanford dean is overreacting. The standards of discourse and the culture of free exchange of ideas, that's not worth protecting. The new free speech project, that's all in the category of moral panic. Oh, also you're old and you need to hear this from me. How will you possibly reach anyone who doesn't already believe you? And not just believe you, but totally buys into your worldview, which dismisses their legitimate perceptions. You just broadcast that their quite reasonable perceptions are but a sign of old age and brain damage. And why would you want to put your worldview on such display for dispute? Because it's unassailable? No, I think it's because you can't help it. So that's why I wrote, I'm sure all the audience members who disagree will realize they're wrong and still believe you're reporting on disinformation. That's how informing the public works, right? And he responded, I'll tell you what not informing the public is, conflating banning books from public libraries and schools with students asking the people who run their colleges to refrain from spending their tuition money on edgelords from the internet. Thanks, Ben. If I wanted a lesson on not informing the public, I'd watch you on TV. I did not tweet, but I could have. I share it with you in this more refined forum. I also didn't take the distracting bait about banning books. Censorious college students, that's not a problem because book bans are a problem. Crazy idea, they're both problems. And the not this but that technique, that is known as whataboutism, which I'm sure the disinformation reporter knows is a classic propaganda method. I try one last time with Ben. You diminish your standing when you aggressively stake out these questionable positions. You need to have credibility in order to reach viewers who agree with the Cornell president or the Stanford dean. You become the guy who defines disinformation as information he doesn't like, which is basically my thesis and no insults. And Ben says, Mike, you sound like Glenn Greenwald in literally every way right now. Please look at the response to your tweet and reflect. I don't think I'm a gay Bolsonaro target who won the Pulitzer for publicizing Snowden. So not literally in every way, but you know, Glenn Greenwald is free speech. So am I. I do think it's especially important to balance the value of free speech with the idea and label of disinformation. It's kind of the most delicate thing about defining and mitigating against disinformation to be sure you don't get it wrong, to make sure those with the power to suppress disinformation aren't just targeting bad ideas. Someone like Glenn Greenwald takes a more absolutist approach than I do from what I've seen of his arguments. He doesn't think that private companies ever engage in proper content moderation. He doesn't want companies to do any more than assure posts on their site, don't break the law or commit libel. I think there's a role for private companies to take content moderation seriously. I also am very skeptical of the government's ability to accurately label what is disinformation and to suppress it and to not get that wrong. So when one of Ben's followers tells me to shut the fuck up and one asks, why in the world do you care about NBC's brand? 
It's because we have three TV networks, a couple of 24-hour news stations of wavering credibility, and maybe three national newspapers, a couple decent magazines slash websites. And those are the outlets that have the ability to define reality, to set the agenda, to speak with credibility, and I hate to lose them. I hate to lose them to Gateway Pundit, QAnon, Crack and Talk, OAN, the Children's Health Defense, but also to Groupthink to selective outrage in general. I've talked about this explicitly or implicitly on every show I've done for nine years. Of course I care if we lose our truth-seeking mechanisms to lies or just to impulse and lack of self-control. Since I posted my original critique of Ben Collins, people within NBC, people who also cover disinformation, experts on the First Amendment, and people who cover beats very similar to Ben's have back-channeled me and said, exactly. They say, I can't believe a guy who's supposed to be a straight news reporter is always popping off like this. Well, I believe it. I just decry it. And I wonder how much he cares about what should be his real mission. Because if he did, he would sacrifice a little of the dopamine hit of the Twitter row and show the entire audience that he's there to tell them something accurate and important. And that's it for the Saturday show. It was all cut together by producer Corey Wara and just senior producer Joel Patterson. Talk to you on Monday.